I was finding these connections between anti-abortion movements and these connections with US organisations and far-right organisations internationally. It's concerning that US organisations that have nothing to do with the lives and rights of women in Poland are taking action to try and take away those rights. episode 44 of the Refuse Fascism podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. We're releasing today's episode two days before the start of Trump's impeachment trial, a trial of a fascist who attempted to stay in power by means of a violent coup attempt. A couple days ago, I talked with Coco Das, co-editor of RefuseFascism.org, an author of a new piece titled The Left Coalition That Kept You Off the Streets and Won't Stop Fascism. We don't know what will happen as this trial starts on Tuesday, but things don't look good. The Republican Party has pretended that the January 6th attack on Congress didn't happen, continued to back the prominent fascist maniacs like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and even sent their leader Kevin McCarthy to Florida to kiss Trump's ring, acknowledging that his movement still controls and will control their party in the future. According to Simple Math, it's unlikely at this time that this party, still enthralled to Trump, will deliver the necessary votes to convict him in the Senate. And yet, none of this had to play out this way. The majority of us in this country don't want to live in a fascist America. And when given the chance to act together, meaningfully to stand up for justice, we have done so and would have done so during this attempted coup, potentially changing all sorts of calculus and maybe even preventing the momentum that culminated in the January 6th siege, maybe even removing this fascist from power sooner than January 20th. But liberal organizations working with Democratic Party strategists squelched any chance of that this fall, deciding instead to focus on so-called optimism and paper over the real threat that Trump and his people represent, a threat that burst onto the stage in an undeniable way during the attack on January 6th. You have to dig into the story. Read the account of this demobilization strategy from an article the New York Times published a couple weeks ago and Coco's response posted on refusefascism.org. But first, I spoke this week with writer Sean Norris about the anti-abortion movement internationally, as well as in the U.S. Sean is a writer and journalist specializing in reproductive and LGBTIQ rights. Her book, Birth Violence, explores how the far right is attacking women's reproductive rights in Europe and will be published by Verso in autumn 2022. She is also the founder of the Bristol Women's Literature Festival. For those of us who have stood toe-to-toe with some of these women-hating thugs while working to protect women's clinics or escort patients, the mob that showed up at the Capitol felt familiar. Though larger in size and more determined than usual, they put up a scaffold as well as a giant cross outside Congress, two potent symbols of their theocratic agenda, which has included violent assaults on abortion providers and clinics for decades. This is a movement that has murdered at least 11 people in the U.S., including abortion doctors and staff, 
primarily lashing out in violence when they feel they aren't achieving their goal of eliminating access to legal and safe abortion. I started out by asking Sean what compelled her to start to write her book. So I've been involved in the feminist movement for a really long time, nearly, well, since 2007. And a lot of my activism was looking around issues on violence against women and also issues around representation. And then as a journalist, I was writing a lot about those issues. And then I started looking at these kind of rising far-right movements in Europe. And I was particularly looking at issues in Romania, partly because I've got family members who are from Romania. And, and so it was kind of an interesting country to start exploring. And and what I was finding was in Romania, in Hungary, in Poland, across various European countries, we were seeing this real far-right backlash against both abortion rights and also LGBTQIA rights. And this kind of came to a head in Romania in 2018 when there was a referendum to try and preemptively ban equal marriage, so marriage rights for gay couples or LGBTQIA couples. And a lot of this referendum activity was coming from this organisation called the Coalition for the Family, who were also very anti-abortion. And they were working closely with US organisations such as the Liberty Council, who organised a tour for this anti-equal marriage activist called Kim Davis. And she came to Romania and toured the country talking about the so-called dangers of equal marriage. And so although that's a kind of a, an LGBT rights issue, there was so much crossover with what was happening with the sort of anti-abortion movements across Europe. And more and more, I was finding these connections between anti-abortion movements like grassroots within the UK, within Ireland, particularly around the 2018 abortion rights referendum there, in Romania, in Poland, and these connections with US organisations and far-right organisations internationally. And so the more I was seeing this, the more it kind of was raising these questions like, why are we seeing this rise or this focus on anti-abortion activism? Why are these movements becoming so vocal? Why are they interconnected? Why are they working with the US organisations? And it was a bit like, this metaphor has been co-opted by the far right, but it was a bit like that red pill moment in The Matrix. Once you see it, you, you can't stop seeing it. Although I was so annoyed. I always used to use that for feminism. And then those men's rights activists took it and ruined it for everyone. But once I started seeing these connections, I, I was finding more and more of them. And then so around this time last year, I was working on a report with Open Democracy 5050, looking at US anti-abortion organisations and how they were using misinformation tactics to manipulate women, persuade women not to have abortions all over the world. And they were acting in the UK. They were acting in Italy, in Spain, in Uganda. They have this kind of network of affiliates and partners which are operating in, in so many different countries. And so again, there was this connection of a kind of this time a Christian right or a anti-abortion organisation using money and power and influence to try and attack abortion rights in, in various countries in the world. And so, yeah, it was kind of lots and lots of different stories and articles and ideas that I was working on that kept bringing these questions back to the fore. And I think it's, it's interesting because in the UK, we've seen quite a lot of progress on abortion rights in the last couple of years. Namely, we finally changed the law in Northern Ireland. So until March this year, or March last year, 2020, abortion was still completely banned in Northern Ireland. So even though in the rest of the UK and Britain, you could have an abortion legally and safely under certain circumstances, the law did not apply to Northern Ireland. So that was finally changed. That was a big success. Across the border in, in the Republic of Ireland, we had this big success of abortion finally being legalised there. And that was met with what seemed to me like a rising opposition to abortion or a rising 
energy in the anti-abortion movement. And this has been borne out in the UK by lots of um, pro-choice organisations and reproductive healthcare providers saying that they've seen an uptick in protests outside of their clinics and a kind of much more aggressive tactics being employed by the anti-abortion movement in the UK. So where we've seen success and a positive move towards better rights for women and pregnant people, we've also seen this backlash of more energy in the anti-abortion movement and more aggressive tactics trying to silence women's reproductive rights. Where there has been progress, not too far away, there's also been very dire restrictions. Is there anything surrounding what's happening in Poland that you think is important for listeners to be aware of or to understand the connections? Absolutely. The first thing to understand about Poland is that abortion wasn't legal before. So sometimes I've seen people talking about Poland and like this ban is coming in and it's like, yes, a new ban is coming in, but there was already an abortion ban. So up until January 2021, abortion was banned in all circumstances in Poland, except for rape and incest, threat to the mother's life, fatal fetal abnormality or fetal defect. And in October 2020, the Polish government said that they were going to take away the exception for fetal defect, so that abortions would only be permissible in cases of rape and incest, fatal fetal abnormality, and threat to the mother's life. And this provoked a huge upsurge in protests from Polish women and women's allies. I think I spoke to one journalist in Poland who said it was the biggest protest that they've had in history. And bearing in mind, you know, this means we're talking bigger than the sort of end of communism, the sort of big liberation movement protests at the, at the end of the sort of Soviet period, at the end of the Cold War. So this was a huge protest movement. But it didn't work. The ban has come in now. They've pushed forward this ban. And the interesting thing about Poland is that this has been in the making for a long period of time. So Poland is run by a far-right government, the Law and Justice Party. And this, I think, was the third attempt to restrict abortion since 2016, when the first women's strike protests happened. So they've been wanting to do this for a while. And one of the ways they were able to do it this time is through a kind of prolonged attack on the constitutional justice system in Poland. So they've had this long-term attack on the constitutional courts to make it easier for them to push through legislation such as anti-abortion legislation, despite this not necessarily having public support and despite this having been met with massive protests. Another thing that was interesting about the Polish protests is although the main focal point was the women's strike, that this was about women's reproductive health and, and the ban on abortion, there was also a lot of anger about other progressive politics and other issues. So there was a lot of anger about the treatment of LGBTQIA people in Poland who the presidential election that happened in 2020, the, the winning candidate used a lot of very homophobic rhetoric. In Poland, we're seeing the declaration of what they're calling LGBT-free zones, so towns where they are free from LGBT, air quote, ideology. And, and again, it's like these things are often very linked where you see attacks on reproductive rights. You also often see attacks on LGBTQIA rights and other minority rights, such as refugees or people seeking asylum or particularly in Eastern Europe, the Roma community, so attacks on, on the Roma community. But also what we saw with Poland was organisations in the US being very vocal about A, their support for what was happening with the ban, but also saying that they could take credit for the ban. And so the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of the huge kind of religious right organisations in America, they posted an article after the ban was proposed in October, like celebrating what they called a landmark ruling and sort of talking about their influence that they'd had on the ban itself. And this influence includes kind of giving submissions to human rights councils. In Romania, they gave like amicus briefings, so they're called friend of court briefings to the government. And they said in this article regarding Poland, how we intervene to highlight the clear protections which exist in international law for unborn children, including those with disabilities. Although that's not clear what that intervention is. 
they're clearly saying, you know, we played our part in this ban. We have influence. We we may be thousands of miles away in Arizona, but we have this power to influence what's happening in Europe. And I think that's really concerning. It's concerning that US organisations that have nothing to do with the lives and rights of women in Poland are taking action to try and take away those rights. Another organisation that was involved was the European Centre for Law and Justice, and they're linked to Jay Sekulov, who was Trump's attorney in the impeachment trial. So he's the chief counsel for the American Centre for Law and Justice, and the ECLJ is a European aspect. And again, they submitted an amicus briefing to the Constitutional Tribunal in Poland in regard to changing the abortion laws. So it's another example of these US organisations going, we, we want to have an impact or we want to influence what is happening in, an, in a, another sovereign nation. So you can see that the borders that they so often laud when they're using them to keep people out, yeah, yeah. they're meaningless when it enables them to take away the autonomy of women elsewhere. You've spoken about how the far right, I call them Christian fascists within the United States, affect the lives of women in Europe. Do you notice that happening the other direction as well, where far-right organizations within Europe play a role in US or is it only in that other direction? Gosh, I really don't know. I mean, I really don't know the answer to that. In some ways, that's quite interesting because it's actually my prejudice thinking, oh, well, America's the big one. They're the ones with the money. So it has to be this one-way traffic. But of course, it could be a two-way traffic. I genuinely I mean, don't know. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like, I'm it's like the money is, is such a huge issue. Because, for example, in the UK, I always joke, like, MPs are so cheap in the UK. And in the, in the States, you have to, like, get lots of money to run a presidential campaign, for example. So in terms of wealth, I think it's America does have that power. But that's, of course, not to say that there isn't a, a two-way street in terms of influence or... Or, or campaigning tool. I only ask because I wonder whether there's a sharing of strategies. Because mm. look, globally, a lot of these, the tactics that are used to intimidate women, to move policy forward into law are very similar. And so there is a level of coordination. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I think that's fair to say, definitely. And I think there's definitely coordination within European countries. I think that's that's really the case. And I have to check the dates, but there's definitely cases where a lawsuit that has happened in Europe or in the UK around issues of religious freedom, or, you know, I'm using air quotes, a religious freedom <laughs> issue. So, for example, there was a, a case of a baker in Belfast refusing to make a gay marriage cake. And there was a similar case in the US and both got ADF involvement. But I don't know which one came first, like whether one learned from the other. <laughs> like the, but there must definitely be these kind of crossovers of... Another big issue is what's the so-called buffer zones. I don't know if they're called the same in, in the US, but in the UK, we had this, like, this proposal for buffer zones around abortion clinics to keep distance between the anti-abortion protesters and women attending healthcare appointments. And we don't have them mandated in the UK. A couple of clinics do have them. There isn't a buffer zone law. And there was a big case in the US which ADF defended, which got rid of the buffer zones as a religious freedom issue. And I think, again, that's where you can really see tactics being shared. Like, OK, so you, you managed to get rid of them in the US. How can we apply those same tactics to, to prevent them being brought in in the UK? And, and you can see very similar uses of language. I mean, some of the wording in the submission for the buffer zone case in Massachusetts was like, this zone means that people are having to shout when, and it's like, oh, you could just not be there. Like you could just, like you could just not shout at women, like, <laughs> like, as if as if you got rid of the buffer zone and people would start having polite 
whispered. I mean, the whole point is that no one should be intimidated while going to a healthcare appointment. And yet they were like, oh, you are forcing us to shout. You are forced. People can't see our signs when we have to stand outside of this buffer zone. It's like, yeah, that means the buffer zone's working. <laughs> like, yeah. so I think you can see how when you have a success in one country, that then those tactics are shared. And the interesting thing about the anti-LGBT campaign in Romania was that was very much the opposite. It was the language being used in that was that the US had failed to prevent equal marriage. So we're going to show you how you can succeed where we have failed so that you don't make the same mistakes, mistakes yeah. that we have made. So you do definitely see these crossovers of strategy and sharing sharing of successes, sharing of failings to support religious right, or as you say, Christian fascist and far right movements in different countries. So I want to move the conversation to the United States. Yeah. If that's all right with you. Yeah. (laughs) Because as you say, there's a lot of crossover and there's a lot to learn from your research that I think applies here as well. You mentioned this before. There's typically an uptick in the violence that you see on the streets or at clinics when there's been successes. Or in the case of the United States, when a Democrat is in power, where there may not actually be legislation that is a success for women. During Obama, there was some of the largest waves of restrictions at the state level on abortion. But the anti-abortion violence under Clinton and right after Obama took office with the murder of Dr. Chiller, the last doctor who was murdered, shot in a church. And I'm wondering what can we expect to happen now with the departure of Trump and Biden in office? What are your thoughts on what we might see in the United States? This isn't a United States event, but I went to undercover to a sort of religious right, far right organizations conference undercover under an assumed name. And one of the things that I found really interesting was how much they were talking about Trump and considering this was a fairly fringe UK organization. One of the things they kept talking about was how this is a time to regroup and rebuild. So with Trump being defeated and Biden coming in, the threat that this posed to the anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQIA movements meant they had to take a step back and regroup and rebuild. I think one of the first things that really struck me when I started looking at the violence in the Capitol, and I, you know, I think like many of us, I was watching it live on the news and watching that shift of news reporters going from talking about a protest of Trump supporters to that sort of dawning, like this is much more serious. But one of the things that came up was one of the men attending it was a Hold on, let me get his job title right. I don't want to accidentally libel someone. He was from Virginia and he'd been elected as into the West Virginia House of Delegates. And his name was Derek Evans. And he had a history of violence against abortion clinics. So immediately you saw this linking of these kind of very angry Trump supporting I would say far right, but let's say right wing as well, just to be on the safe side, men who with a history of anti-abortion violence taking part in this in this riot, in this in attempted insurrection. So I think what happens is they feel very threatened by the potential for positive change, even though, as you say, that change might not actually be coming. And they have to sort of make sure that they're visible. They want everyone to believe that this is what people actually want and that they have a lot more support than they maybe do. And this is particularly the case in the UK, where it is generally a very pro-choice population. Like most social attitude surveys say that most people are happy with having safe legal abortion. 
So by being louder, by being more vocal, by being more visible, they can give this impression that there is a much bigger wave of support than they actually have. And that their way, their ideas are winning when they're actually descending or they're, they're regressing. And so I think that's why you end up having this kind of more vocal, more violent, more aggressive anti-abortion movement when things are going quite well or when you're seeing positive change. A, because they feel so under threat and because they want to create an illusion that this is this is the winning side to be on. And one of the things that has always really struck me when I've gone undercover in anti-abortion movements is just how overly confident they are. I went to one and they were like, oh, we'll have banned abortion in, within five years in the UK. And I'm like, that is just not likely. But they almost have to kind of be bigging themselves up because otherwise... You're just a bunch of very aggressive, very cruel people standing on a street corner harassing women. And they want to believe that they've got a bigger thing going on than that. Sorry, that was quite a garbled answer. No, I, <laughs> like... I think that you brought a lot into it. I mean, one thing that I think is that during the Trump era, they were brought in yeah. the fold in a way that, that is unprecedented. He delivered for the anti-abortion movement more than anyone in history has. Yes, um, and I think this is really important. And I think this is, this is something I was working on this week, is a lot of Trump's support came from these very racist, white supremacist, extremist misogynists. And even if you just look at the extremist misogynist side, which obviously has huge overlap with white supremacy, there's been some really interesting research about how men on places like the Red Pill Reddit and these kind of online subcultures were politicized to vote for Trump. Like they, there was very much a lot of activity on those forums in the run up to the 2016 election saying, you know, Trump is our man. He's going to win the war on men. <laughs> he's the alpha male. He's our candidate. He's our guy. And I think when you've been elected on this wave of white supremacist misogynistic hate, you have to deliver you have to keep that promise. And that's what he did. He brought in the anti-abortion movement. He extended the hand of friendship to white supremacists. His colleagues were praising natalist policies in Europe. So the Hungarian family protection program was praised by men like Joe Grogan, who was very, very close to President Trump. He knew who his base was. He knew who had given him power and he wasn't going to let them down. He was going to bring in this very nasty political anti-abortion policies. He was going to whip up that base because otherwise they are who made him the president. And I think it's really crucial we understand the racism and misogyny and these subcultures that help propel Trump to power to understand why he followed the political program that he did. I mean, of course, some politicians do that and then they just ignore all of their votes. But I don't think he did. <laughs> like, I think he... No, I think that they were a really big part of the program that he was bringing into being. They made him in many ways, but he made them too. The danger that I see that has a, a long lasting effect is that they have been normalized, yeah. that they have been legitimized, and that they've been brought into the folds where they aren't seen as religious nuts screaming on the corner with their fetal porn. Yeah. They're on the Supreme Court. They're on yeah. federal courts across the country. They had positions of power. It's not just that these were resume builders or part of someone's career, that it was seen that they were a part of the biggest superpower in the world. And that has a longstanding effect. I think like the Marjorie Taylor Greene example is really illuminating for that, isn't it? I mean, she's been getting a lot of attention in the British press as well, I think. Because you've got someone who, oh, I've got to get this quote because it's, it's just unbelievable, really. She said, Trump's re-election in 2020 is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take this global cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles out. And she's like repeating the QAnon conspiracy as an anti-abortion MP made horrible comments about 
um, survivors of mass shootings about Nancy Pelosi. And she's now she's now in a position of power. And this is like this is something that would have been unthinkable, I think. Exactly 10 years ago, if not five years ago. And now it's normalised. The people who have these beliefs, if you question that, you're sort of being like, oh, well, that's not, they're allowed to believe this or my truth, their truth is the truth. And, And I think that's become very, very dangerous. I wanted to go back to something that we were talking about just a moment ago was around the connection between white supremacy and misogyny and the anti-abortion movement. Looking at some of the, the work that's been done exposing who were the participants in the siege of the Capitol Mm. in the United States. It was not unsurprising to those who've been following the anti-abortion movement and looking at violence to see so many of those key players pictured. One of them was Jason Storms, Operation Save America leader. And he participated in that. He also filmed himself in Kenosha, Wisconsin, extolling Kyle Rittenhouse as a hero just days after the teenager shot and killed two Black Lives Matter protesters. And I was wondering if from the work that you've done, what connections have you seen between this white supremacy and the anti-abortion movement? I think it's one of the most underexplored areas of, of this issue. I think it's, and it's absolutely crucial. Starting from a UK perspective, there's, there's one of the sort of first very aggressive anti-abortion groups, which used very graphic imagery and did those kind of protests outside clinics, is linked to one of the leaders of a anti-Islam organisation, a far-right organisation called Britain First. The person who was involved in that is now part of a sort of far-right militia group called the Knights Templar International and is a pro-life spokesperson. And this is when I really, that kind of really light bulb moment of like the anti-abortion movement and white supremacy is just so interlinked. I think one of the big issues is is it's very linked to this conspiracy theory of the Great Replacement. And I'm sure most of your listeners were very aware of this conspiracy theory, but it's the idea that white people are being overrun and replaced by black and minority ethnic people, particularly via immigration from the global south, and that there's this so-called white genocide that is being perpetuated against white Europe or white America or white Australia. And one of the kind of big issues in The Great Replacement is that there's a low white birth rate. All of this is, you know, complete nonsense. It's just the statistics that you see to justify The Great Replacement are just made up most of the time. But it is this kind of idea that there's this low white birth rate, there's rising immigration from the global south, and this is a threat to the white race. And the way to fix that is A, to violently end immigration, and also to exploit women's, white women's reproductive labour, and to increase the white birth rate. And the way that you do that is by banning abortion. There's this really brilliant quote by an African-American doctor called Willie Parker, which just sums it up perfectly. And he says, the thing all too many white anti-abortion activists really want, which they can't say out loud, is for white women to have more babies in order to push back against the browning of America. And I just come back to that quote over and over again, because it just crystallizes this issue that the reason white supremacist people want to ban abortion is because they want to exploit women's reproductive labor and repopulate the white race. Even though, as I say, there is no great replacement, there is no white genocide, white people are not under threat. It's just nonsense. But it's it's also really interesting because you have these very strong historic parallels where this has happened before, particularly in America. So in the 1860s, when America criminalized abortion until 1971, you had these, these issues where women were gaining some independence. There was kind of burgeoning women's liberation movement. Women had more and more political and economic power. And they also had some control over their reproduction because abortion wasn't criminalized. You also had rising immigration into America from Ireland, China, various other countries, Mexico. 
And you also were approaching the kind of end of slavery and so a threat of power to kind of white American power. And this is when you started to get a kind of more and more anti-abortion movement in the States. And there was this great quote by like a leading anti-abortionist who was like, the future of this nation rests in women's loins. <laughs> and, you know, like, and the language that he was using is very, very similar to the language that the anti-abortion far right movement is using today. This, you know, that we're being swamped, we're being overrun is this what we want the future of this country to be? And I think I think once you understand that this has happened before, and not just in America, but in Europe, obviously in Nazi Germany, you had the medal system to try and incentivize women to have more Aryan babies for the Third Reich. In, even in, in Romania, they banned abortion in the 1960s, and that was again to try and boost nation building. So you, you see these patterns happening over and over again, and it always comes back to this white supremacist anxiety about power and white status and white male power and white male supremacy and a violent kickback against immigration and against civil rights and a desire to ban abortion to exploit women's reproductive labour. And of course, I mean, there's just so many horrible things about it, but obviously when you do ban abortion, it's often the most marginalised women, the poorest women in society who are most effect- affected and most harmed. And because of we live in white supremacist society, that's often black and minority ethnic women who will be most impacted by anti-abortion policies. So the whole thing is just disgusting, really. It's just this horrible nightmare. For a long time, when people talk about anti-abortion, they, they think about kind of you know, religious sensibility, or it's a personal morality. And, you know, so you can't almost you can't criticize it, because it's this personal moral decision. And actually, we have to understand it in terms of white supremacy and racism, and and extreme misogyny, because that's, that's what's at the root of so much of this belief. And I think that there's also the difference between someone having a belief, including a religious belief, and using that belief to bludgeon other people. Yeah, and absolutely. And people are allowed to believe things, <laughs> including things that are untrue. I would say that we should struggle with people to be as scientific as they can be to understand what is a human being and what is a subordinate part of a woman's body. I think yeah. understanding the way that bodies work is important to our species. But people are allowed to have a belief. But the not become something that you then use to enforce your belief on other people. That's something different. It's the old adage, if you're anti-abortion, just don't have one. You can choose not to have one, but that doesn't mean you take away the choice of women or to have one. Exactly. It's such an important distinction. You, you know, we're all allowed to have our personal belief, our personal choices. And it's that, again, it's that thing of like, the right want a government small enough to fit in a women's womb. Exactly. You know, it's like... Exactly. If more government's your thing, then get out. <laughs> exactly. 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 I guess I want to end with a broad question that you should feel however to an- you want to answer it. But you title your forthcoming book, Birth Violence. Can you talk about what you think the danger is, what the violence is that you feel that people who care about the lives of women should be should be paying attention to what is the violence that concerns you yeah absolutely first of all I should probably give credit to a friend of mine who came up with that title <laughs> but to Good me, friend. the violence is the violence to me at the heart of the anti-abortion white supremacist movement is a dehumanization of others so white male supremacist movement dehumanizes women and sees women's bodies as vessels from which they can extract resource and in this case a resource is fetuses babies children and I, I think when you spend time on kind of extremist misogynistic forums, you, you see so much dehumanizing language. And the way they talk about women is is so othering in a very, very violent way. And I think we have to understand that that's what's going on. Like the violence is in not seeing women as human, is not seeing women as having the right to humanity. 
and therefore the right to have control over their own body and just seeing women as bodies that you can use. And that means you can use them sexually. That means you can use them as reproductive vessels. That means you can use them in, in any way you like, but never seeing women as, as, as being human beings that are worthy of rights and that have full human rights. And I think that's a really terrifying thing, but it's also the thing that can easily be defeated by making sure everybody understands that women do have humanity and we do have rights and we are human. I mean, you spend time on incel websites and they use this term foids, like, which is short for femoid. And, and it's just, it's so dehumanizing. It's, un it's almost unbelievable. <laughs> And, and there's a real violence just in, in that that we need to fight back against. Thank you so much for joining us. I learned so much and I know that our listeners did as well. That was Sean Norris, author of the forthcoming book, Birth Violence. You can follow her at Sean Nushka or SeanTheWriter.com. Next, we'll hear from Coco Das talking about her new piece on RefuseFascism.org. I was really excited to see up on refusefascism.org there is a new piece from you and it is called the left coalition that kept you off the streets and won't stop fascism what compelled you to write this piece well it was a few things if i go back a little bit to before the election i just remember hearing a bunch of chatter about this possibility that trump would not accept the results of the election. And people were talking about what to do if that happened. And many people said that people would have to take to the streets. And there were articles about what are you supposed to do if there's a coup, which is what it is if you don't accept the results of an election and try to stay in power. And yet the election happened. Trump immediately would not concede, he immediately started spreading lies that he won the election by a lot. And there weren't any calls except for the actions that we called. <laughs> there were no major calls for people to protest, even though many groups said that that's what they were going to do. And I guess I was puzzled by that. And then this article came out in the New York Times on January 24th by Alexander Burns, and he basically explained the whole strategy of this coalition of groups that came together. It was a number of nonprofit groups, and it sounded like Democratic Party strategists, and it kind of walked through this phone call that happened hours after the January 6th siege on the Capitol as if a phone call with 900 people, like that was the accomplishment. So I really think it's worth people reading that article in the New York Times and then uh, reading my piece, because it actually explains that it was a deliberate strategy to stay off the streets. And that for months, these people had been planning and talking. And it seems that a big part of the strategy was avoiding protest. It provoked for me a lot of thinking on, okay, where are we now? We still have these lunatic fascists in the government. We have a situation where this country is full of 74 million people voted for Trump, white supremacist, misogynist, fascist, lunatic. And we have not resolved the fascism problem. We still have a, a huge Nazi problem. This is another article I wrote a few months ago. And we don't have the opposition that is needed to actually repudiate this whole program or even repudiate the fact that Trump incited a violent mob to storm the Capitol. Yes, it's, you can say that my article is a critique of this strategy of staying off the street and the title sort of speaks for itself. This is a coalition that kept you off the streets and that strategy will not stop at home. 
And I think it was so important because when I first read the Alexander Burns piece, how Democrats planned for doomsday, I read it as, what was the plan? You had an insurrection. And what was the plan? You had this tremendous coalition of people saying that they wanted to act. And yet they were told by basically the Democratic Party, no, don't protest. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that your take on pulling back the lens of what is it that we face? What were the dynamics that happened since the election? And what should people have done, I think is extremely well worth looking at, especially because, as you said, this danger is not over, it's not done. And your piece actually goes into what you mean by that and what the fast danger is in this moment. There was one part in particular that struck me about the power that could have been wielded. You wrote, if they'd really been ready, Trump and his backers in and out of government could not have kept spreading the lie of a stolen election without massive opposition. In reality, there was only one thing this coalition was ready for, stopping the millions who hate Trump from taking to the streets to express their outrage. That question that you posed, what were they ready for? What were they planning? (laughs) What was the plan? There was, it seemed like the plan was to do nothing and see how things unfolded and just hang on to this like electoral victory that was very fragile. The article talks about all the things they would not do. They would not use incendiary language. They would not use or like, you know, polarizing language like defund the police. They would not use the word coup. They would not call street protests. Uh, It was all about what they wouldn't do. There wasn't actually anything of substance of a plan of what they would do. And the main thing is that they didn't do what was needed. And if you're not trying to stop it, you know what's coming, you're not trying to stop it, then what are you doing? I think that that's a really important point. And I think what you're willing to do and how you're going to lead people to act has everything to do with whether you're willing to be scientific and call what it is that you see as Mm -hmm. you see it. And I think that it wasn't just that they didn't want to use certain words. They didn't want to confront what they were being confronted by yeah, (laughs) and all of the ramifications of that. And so I think that there's a lot on the line now as we approach next week's the impeachment trial, whether truth and by any any glimpse of looking at the the data of the of not just the six but the days going into that any objective analysis would say he is guilty beyond Mm -hmm. doubt and it wouldn't take a long trial at all and so i was wondering if you had any other thoughts um off of your article as it pertains to the trial starting next week and what people who who know that this is fascism that we're still being faced by what what questions should we be asking what demands should we be making any other thoughts we have yeah i mean i think we definitely need to demand that trump be convicted and we have to find the means of raising that demand right now at a time when the basis unfortunately for street protests a massive street protest is just not there partly because of what this coalition did. But you had mentioned this phrase that I think is really true, and an unpunished coup becomes a training exercise. Mm -hmm. If the various parts of the fascist movement, the global fascist movement doesn't really see what happened as a failure, they've learned a lot from it, and they saw how far they could go. And who knows, with more planning, with a more strategic approach, with a different kind of leadership, the ground is laid for something like this to happen, even at the state level, and for the re-seizure of power. And we have to do whatever we can to sound the alarm and spread this demand 
everywhere, maybe through banner drops and and signs and windows and, and over social media. But we do really need to think about how are we going to change this dynamic and change the situation where the majority of people in this country who really do not want to live in a fascist America, who don't want lunatics like Marjorie Taylor Greene in government, what are we going to put on the line in order to make sure that this fascist threat goes away. There's a way to do it through sustained nonviolent protest, which is what the very least you can do to oppose any kind of injustice, right? We have to get get back to a situation where we're not letting the fascists set the terms, we're setting the terms based on the interests of humanity, what humanity needs. This slogan from Refuse Fascism, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America is just something that millions of people need to take to heart. Because what this coalition did, for whatever reason, was they accepted a fascist America. They said, okay, this is how much we will accept, and this is what we're going to do and not going to do. What they did was they cleared the way. Even though Trump is out of the White House, they cleared the way for fascists to keep advancing. And that is a dynamic that we have to break out of. Thank you, Coco, so much. You can't see it as a listener, but she's in her car on a short break um, (laughs) doing the interview. So I want to thank Coco for her time and encourage you to read her article, The Left Coalition That Kept You Off the Streets and Won't Stop Fascism. You can read it and more from Coco at RefuseFascism.org. Thanks for listening to the Refuse Fascism podcast. If you just found us for the first time and want to better understand the larger fascist movement that the anti-abortion movement is part of, I'd recommend checking out episodes 4 and 39 with Jason Stanley, author of How Fascism Works, as well as episodes 7 and 31 with Jeff Charlotte, author of The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, and episode 11 with Sarah Posner, author of Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. I also want to invite everyone to tune in to a live conversation tomorrow night on the Senate impeachment trial and the need to refuse fascism. We'll be streaming starting at 8 p.m. Eastern on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, talking with actor and activist Francis Fisher attorney and constitutional law professor Eric Seitz, writer Jared Yates Sexton, and historian and journalist Paul Street. And I'll be there too. There are many ways you can get involved at refusefascism.org. But if you're listening to this podcast right now, the easiest thing you can do is to rate and review us on Apple. It actually helps people find us. So thanks to everyone who has left a rating or review so far. And thanks to Richie Marini and Lena Thorne for helping to produce this and all episodes of the Refuse Fascism podcast. Again, I hope you can join us tomorrow night. Stay safe, not silent. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America.